It's great to have this opportunity to sneak another episode in with Atta who's passing through. He decided to re- remember me <laughs> after avoiding me this whole time, but I um, uh, wanted to talk a little bit about revisiting a conversation we had ages ago now in terms of critical Tongan studies. And one of the things that we brought up back then was that there is heaps of scholarship out there already um, that comes out of Tonga or in relation to Tonga or in relation to, to Kakai Tonga, people of Tonga. And that while there are other you know, realms of study, you know, Oceania studies or studies in the Pacific or you know, a variety of different variations, there's enough there that we could look at something more specifically. So we wanted to talk about some of the ways in which Atta's been thinking about these different waves of intellectual traditions in what we would call Tonga. Understanding that there was perhaps different ways of understanding that before. Um, but maybe we start with, um, what do you think we could begin with? Like the Tufunga or Taula or pre-Tonga? What would you, first of all that, what is pre-Tonga to you? And then let's imagine what the intellectual tradition would have been. And then we can get into post-Tonga. Yeah. Uh, I think just building off of Daniel's, me and Daniel's last episode on Tongan coloniality and just kind of the response is that really looking at Tongan colonization in the way that we say that Tonga was never colonized really places a lot of limitations about thinking about our own history as Tongans. And so this is some of the ideas that I talk about in my own research is we talk about Tonga as as always being Tonga. Tonga is actually a place, Tonga Tapu. But as far as always being Tongan, you know, I talk a lot about how these are modern constructions of nationality. Because, you know, Tao Fa Hao, a young chief, during the civil wars of Tonga, Christianization, you know, creates this new nation state and then establishes it in Tonga Tapu and calls it Tonga. So really, a lot of the times when we're thinking about Tonga and the history of Tonga, it was actually, it was, it was created in this point of time when Dao Fa Hao was kind of creating his own thing in the, in the 1800s, you know, with, starting with the Vava'u Codes, with the influence of um, missionaries, the influence of, of Great Britain, and then eventually starting um, the nation state in 1975. So really, or, or yeah, creating, creating the nation state in 1875. So really, if we're talking about critical Tongan studies, we have to acknowledge the ways in which Tonga itself is a national construction and prior to this existed some type of kind of government that existed throughout the region and not only within the boundaries of what we call Tonga, but kind of a shared, maybe we could call it indigenous history with Fiji, Samoa, uh, and beyond, or even what we would imagine Fiji, Fiti, or Samoa, Ha'amoa, uh, to be um, prior to you know, colonization and, and Christianization. And with, with that, like, 
one thing that we've had conversations with other folks too about is, you know, while Tonga is a place, right, Tonga Tap, there's these different archipelagos, right, the Hapai group, Vava'u, in what is today the kingdom of Tonga, but when you look at these other, you know, these early records of kind of the contact between Europeans and people of what became Tongan, was um, like this autonomy of Vava'u, for example, or even Hapai. Mm-hmm. Right, like you have the tui hapai, tui vava'u, like you have these distinctions. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. yeah, and so while there is like an ethno-linguistic tie, right, or a culture that is shared in terms of language across this region, there's also these buffer zones and areas like the Niwafo'o or Niwatoputapu that are kind of in between what is today Samoa and Tonga, and they have their own expression uh, linguistically. And I don't know, maybe one way of thinking about it isn't like tribes or sub-tribes, yeah. right? Where you have a clan or uh, or the ha'a, right? You have these clans, you have, you know, village-based today, but back in the day it might have been more clan-based or archipelago or island. Um, and people would talk about like specific places, Sefa'i, right? Or Upolu, right? We, there's the title of the Tu'ikano Kupolu, right? That is the flesh that comes from Upolu. Um, or or the Lao group in Fiji, or Uvea and Futuna, which I think is, what do they call it now? Wallace and Futuna? Yeah. Um, after the French colonialism. So you have, a, and, and that is something that would have influenced not only intellectual traditions, but artistic traditions, which are always fused together. And so thinking about, you know, Talanoa with the uh, Tufungateri Kolomatangi in the past, in terms of how there would have perhaps been even like artistic codes that you could identify to specific tufunga, to specific regions or, or tribes, if you will, and ideas that would have been part of that as well. And so you would have had like different masters of, of thought or, or artists, master artisans that would have had their own kind of philosophies um, that might have even transcended these boundaries, just like you said, or even taula. The, the ancient quote-unquote priestesses or priests um, that would have had their own trainings as well. And even like today, we remember some of the big deities or the big ancestor deities, you know, like the Tangaloa, Kau Tangaloa, Kau Maui, Kau Hina, um, Hikuleo, of course, the top. But when we read these early records, you see even more specific ancestor deities that were the heads of different Faleotua uh, or or the god houses, right? So some of that has been kind of I don't know if you want to talk about your experience in Lofanga uh, when you traveled over there, in terms of thinking about even the specificity of what it means to be from there. Yeah, I mean, just you know, spending a lot of time in Tonga, living in Tonga, Tongans don't necessarily say they're Tongan in Tonga, right? They don't necessarily identify as being Tongan unless they're speaking to somebody who would identify them as Tongan. And Tongans would more associate themselves with a village or Tongans really connect um, connect more with being, you know, from Ha'apai, Wabau, and then Tongatapu. And the early records, missionary records, and other, other European records of Tonga, they were actually identifying themselves within these three regions. Wabauans in English would be called Wabau, uh, or Vava'u in English would be called Vava'uans, Hapayans, and then Tonga was like Tongis. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah. Tongis. Yeah, yeah. And so even today you can see folks that are identifying with being from Hapai, Hapai Masani, being from Vava'u. 
or like I was saying before, be associating themselves with the village. But even the village system then itself is a modern construction. It never existed before as far as in Tongatapu, for example, we find villages all over, and then we have dense populations within every village, that the churches in the village. You know, if you look at just the records of Captain Cook, this, this type of village system, when Captain Cook arrived, never existed in the way that Captain Cook describes it. Captain Cook describes it as folks were kind of um, spread out throughout the entire landscape, and there was a concept where they would say that they could communicate from one end to the one end to the other by calling from one api to the next and and sending messages across the across the um, across the island. What were you saying before? Oh, it's just like your experience in Bofanga. Oh yeah, so even like going outside of Tongatapu, going outside of the the main island, if you're in Hapai, if you're in Ewa, if you're in Vavau, if you're in the Niwas, you would say I'm going to Tonga, because Tongatapu was Tonga and they were associating themselves as being in Ewa, as being in Ewa, as being in Ha'apai, as being Ha'apai, uh, and, and then in the Niwas, they would always say, I'm going to Tonga, despite if, even though they were, you know, in the nation state of Tonga. So you can kind of see the ways in which Tonga was Tonga, and they were kind of separate from this idea of being Tonga. And so one of the challenges, right, is that some of this, this still echoes through to this day, like you mentioned, with people were there and then outside sometimes again you're forced to think about yourself through the, the national frame just because that's how people make sense of it a little bit easier um, but because of the process of transforming the society like it was this radical transformation in a short amount of time which we talked about in the last episode around coloniality while we can imagine the intellectual and artistic traditions before it's hard to know exactly the specificities of them. I mean, some of that stuff still exists through family lines. Some of it exists still through chiefly lines or, or chiefly orators. And, and that sometimes is protected or guarded for, you know, for a variety of reasons and different specific protocols. Uh, and in other times, it's just some of it's been lost or collapsed or, or you know, transformed altogether. And again, culture changes all the time. However, what are the forces that cause that change? And so we just wanted to start with that, just to frame that there is this whole range of uh, imagining and reconstructing connections uh, and links to living echoes of that. But within the post-Tonga era, uh, you know, post-1875, uh, the Vava'u Codes and the Constitution and this organization into kind of this modern uh, nation-state monarchy, um, there are these moments that we might identify as different waves of intellectual traditions and, and even artistic traditions. So one thing we were talking about earlier was how with uh, Vava'u Codes, if you remember the episode with Terry Kolomatangi, he talks about how one of the things that was banned there was tatatao, or, or, or uh, skin marking or tattooing. Um, there was other things as well, such as like wearing shirts uh, instead of being shirtless, um, so on and so forth. And another one was the, the night dances, the pomee, that were banned because sometimes people, you know, uh, had a lot of fun at those <laughs> dances and found some more fun afterwards with people they were there with and within the Christian morals that were introduced that was frowned upon. Uh, and at times, too, there was missionaries that would complain about um, people not coming to church the next morning or falling asleep. And so that was kind of banned as well. 
Um, but it kind of re resurges. I mean, obviously we have Tupo Uluwaki and Tupo Ua, but then uh, Tupo Tolu or, or Queen Salote um, is quite a significant moment in kind of perhaps questioning uh, some of the shifts and changes. And I'll just turn it to you, Atta, because I know you've done a lot of reading and research around uh, Queen Salote's biographies uh, by, by different folks and thinking about her as uh, an important wave or perhaps foundation to uh, Tongan intellectual traditions in the post-Tonga era. Yeah. I mean, so with Queen Salote and just the revitalization, there was a lot of revitalization work done by Queen Salote. And this was in response to the creation of the nation state by um, Tao Fa Hau, um, and, you know, creating various laws that kind of change the scope of everyday Tongan life. And so, you know, we create the nation state in 1875. You know, Tao Hao creates this new government, parliament, the noble system, as well as the chief, the, you know, embedded with the chiefly system. And a lot of these chiefly elites, um, ones who actually just were the ones that followed they were they were chief chiefly titles that followed um, Daofa Hao, and then eventually he put them in power once he created the nation state. So a lot of the times these chiefly uh, elites were adopting a lot of European practices. A lot of them weren't wearing the Taovala or the traditional clothing anymore. We have Tupo Ua, who is the great grandson of Daofa Hao, who also is kind of just following a lot of uh, European influences as far as dress and, and whatnot. And then he dies early. Queen Salote becomes, uh, becomes the new monarch in 1918, I think, when she was 18, yeah. some, something like that. And then by the time she starts her revitalization, which was a few decades later, I would say with her upbringing in, um, in New Zealand as far as schooling, her close relationship that she had with the Kingi Tanga uh, in, in Aotearoa, with um, the Queen, um, I would argue that she was highly influenced by kind of the revitalization and kind of the resistance of, of Māori within, within Aotearoa, New Zealand. And that's kind of where she kind of did a 360 and was like, we need, we need to go back to our traditional ways. This is, includes, you know, wearing the traditional clothing, dance, music, creating all of these, um, there was like a cultural committee, committee and traditions. She was having, um, she started the scholarships to send Tongans overseas in order to benefit, um, in order to benefit Tonga. So, you know, big names that were part of this, kind of part of um, the scholarships and the, the education of Tongans overseas. Sionolatu Kefu, Epeli Haofa, so Queen Salote was kind of commissioning all these Tongan students to kind of find the old records. So there's a museum in Australia. She commissioned all these Tongans to kind of uh, copy all of the records, all the records in these museums in order to preserve kind of the Tongan, Tongan tradition. Even until her deathbed, if you read some of the biographies, she, she called on Sionalatu Kefu to make sure that he would continue the work after she passed. So I don't know if I said it in the in the um, in the podcast with with Defa Avai, but I would say there was a period during Queen Salote of kind of transformation and revitalization, or what we what I would call a Tongan Renaissance that is similar to the Hawaiian and Maori Renaissance that really took off 
during Queen Salote's time and then after her passing. You know, I don't know if we said it in the podcast, but I was telling Daniel and Dave that, you know, Queen Salote was the first modern Tongan um, intellectual, but she was also the last Tongan chief. And this was because during the period of her revitalization, she was doing a lot of work with Tongan chiefs. Tongan chiefs from all over, old chiefs from all over, she would entertain them at the palace and she would just listen to what they had to say, learn from them, learn genealogy, learn traditions, old ways of traditions in the way that I would uh, say that she saw it being lost. And so, you know, the end of, of Queen Salote's reign and then the post of her reign was really this really, this period of transformation. And, you know, this was the time of um, not only Sionola Tukefu and Epelehofa that I mentioned, but also Futahelu. And so there's just, just this period of time in Tonga where you just have so many great thinkers. And I know I'm mentioning a lot of men, but there was a lot of women. There's a lot of women, women as well, Konai Helu uh, Thamen. Um, and then Melinaite is kind of a lot younger than this generation, but she's coming off of this really big generation that eventually came to the de democracy movement, which created a lot of social change uh, in Tonga back in like the 60s and then in the 70s. I wanted to mention just briefly a great resource. I mean, obviously read, read the books, but if you want to watch the documentary, <laughs> there's a short one that is accessible and on YouTube. It was directed by New Zealand-based someone artist and, and producer Lisa Tauma, who uh, made this three-part series called Women of Power, from people represented across Oceania. But part two um, focuses on Queen Salote and and Tonga. And one of the challenges that she faced was, she, you know, there was debates as to whether she was going to make it in, right, as, as the reigning monarch. Because at that time, right, again, you have this shift from an era where you have, you know, not just Tuitonga, but Tuitonga Fefine and Tamaha, which are these specific roles of women chiefs that, that preside uh, into an era, you know, post post-Christianity where now you have a, a greater focus on um, patrilocality or, or patriarchy or, or patriarchal orders um, and so she did the documentary talks about how she had to face a lot of those challenges and especially as a young person she also inherited uh, the ramifications of the Treaty of Friendship which we talked about in the Tongan Coloniality episode you know implores a lot of different strategies we might even argue that on one hand I like how you framed Atta where she's the um first Tongan intellectual, last Tongan chief. <laughs> and that's where maybe you have that shift of that chiefly intellectual system that would have come through the specific lineages and lines, and there's echoes of that still through to this day, but being able to organize and bring those in, she also negotiates the, un the kind of unification of the three paramount chiefly lineages or, or dynasties in what we would call the Tongan context today um, through... The arrangement of the marriage of um, Tupofa, 
um, which you know, some would argue is reflected in the, the song that she composed of Halako Papa, which was put to music by the um, musicians uh, in La Paja, um, the Lomi Piao. Um, however, the, the lyrics were composed by her, where, you know, it talks about kind of the her chiefliness and her response. And one, this is just one interpretation, right? Her response to the challenges that she was being given, um, but also lining up all her chiefly lines that connect her to places in what we would today call Fiji and Samoa, but even to the different lineages in Tonga as well. And so in one sense, right, she does finish the job of from conquest, you know, with Dolpha Ahau to unification with Queen Salote. And part of that is gathering that, that knowledge and then sending out these scholars like Ata mentions to gather and collect knowledge as well. We have to remember that when they're studying, they're also studying in context outside of Tonga where, you know, uh, Patriarch is a lot more um, efficiently running and robust. And so it's not a surprise that we'd find more men scholars at that time too. But I don't know if you wanted to mention the, the Palangi scholars and perhaps her strategic relationships with, in particular, white women anthropologists yeah. that had a huge audience with her and recorded a tremendous amount of things from her directly. Yeah, I mean, f- from the outside looking in, a lot of people kind of say, oh, we have all these white men and women talking about Tonga, but I think Queen Salata herself was ingenious in the way that she knew that white women could navigate Tongan um, social structure and just the hierarchical nature of, of Tongan society in a ways in ways that Tongans and even white men couldn't. So, you know, we have uh, Adrian Kepler, oh, Elizabeth Elizabeth Bott. Bott. Yeah. So these were these are very um, important scholars as far as recording the histories and the genealogies and the knowledges of Tongans um, during the time of, of Queen Salote. And she was she commissioned them. She was um, very close with all of them. You know, some of them she considered um, a sibling. But it was these women who were who were able to kind of navigate Tongan society and and kind of record a lot of um, a lot of the knowledges that you will find in their publications. Despite you know the, pol- the identity politics of them being white women, I think it was an ingenious move by Queen Salote, knowing that female white non-Tongan women uh, would be able to con- to kind of uh, push the work that she herself was, was having a hard time uh, doing as, um, you know, a Tongan woman, a Tongan chief, and a Tongan uh, queen. You want to talk about no? Like, because they're... I think about it, too, because even myself, right, as a non-biological Tongan, but who has, like, who can hohoko to, like, yeah. Tongan teachers... Definitely. ...and influences, right? Like, when people assume that I'm Tongan in Tonga, like, the assumption is usually that I'm Tu'a. Because yeah. who I'm with, right, in that realm. But as soon as the, it's known that I'm not, like, my access shifts and changes yeah. beyond that of even a Tongan because I'm not, right? And, like, sometimes somebody will intentionally uh, allow people to assume that I am, and it's interesting, like, why they choose that. And there's other times where they'll intentionally say, oh, no, no, he's not. Yeah. And sometimes it also increases their access <laughs> through me because I'm not, right? I'm neutral yeah. from the responsibilities and obligations of certain hierarchical structures that exist within yeah, yeah. society. And sometimes, yeah, that'll be leveraged. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I think the start of it was Elizabeth Bott. 
I, I'm I'm pretty sure she was born and raised in Tonga. Her father played a really big role within, I think Toloa. Don't don't quote me on this, but their family was well known in Tonga, and and close with the royal family. And so, Queen Salote talks about that. You know, Elizabeth bought was it was like a sister to her, and so Elizabeth bought herself. You know, a lot of Tongans in, in that time treated her as Tongan, speaking the language, growing up in Tonga, knowing how to navigate uh, Tongan society. Uh, in ways that non other non-Tongan scholars were able to do, which I think opened up the opportunity for Adrian Kepler, who was a new anthropologist, did uh, a lot of work with Hawaiians in their in the early days, and then really focused a lot of her time uh, in Tonga and then Wendy Bott as well. Um, so I think Elizabeth Bott was kind of a big uh, a, a big key in allowing other um, white women, white female scholars, to kind of assist Queen Salote in. Recording the knowledge, but you know the the analysis uh, across the knowledges that they were they were recording was was very important in kind of understanding Tonga within the context of modernity, coloniality, and kind of the revival that Queen Salote was committed and uh, was committed to um, throughout her life. And the one that uh, one in particular in collaboration with Elizabeth Watt was. Um something along the lines of like Tonga at the time of Captain Cook. Yeah, yeah. And there's like genealogies that are written in there. There's cultural practice that are written in there. And again, it's almost like because there's these different, I guess, cultural or social expectations and protocols, having somebody who is like a sister and in many ways was in, you know, a, a intimate relationship at the same time could be leveraged as, as an outsider meant that you could talk openly in ways that maybe are difficult when somebody is within the structure. Um, and so there's a lot of really important things that are written down in there with her. And so, yeah, I think I, I, I liked how, how you framed Queen Salote for sure. Really important intellectual. Now, one of the things that occurs, though, is like I remember one time I had an experience in Tonga where I was able to ask questions that this person who was, you know, giving me, you know, responses and answers was a little bit shocked because they were like, wait a minute, how do you know this? And I was like, this was actually published a long time ago by Queen Salote through Elizabeth Bott. And they were kind of taken back. And I was like, you can go look at it. It's online, <laughs> right? And so if you do look and you read it, it's there. Yeah. Um, and this was kind of an interesting experience going through that. But as it became more, it became recorded and documented and then uh, became more accessible in some ways. Accessible in that you could technically go look at it, but you also got to put in the work. You got to yeah. find it. You got to read it. Think about it. And some people were, and so when we think about like Futahelu, like accessing you know part of this wave of stuff, information and knowledge, and also researching as well with his you know own approach and interests, uh, is also then begins to perhaps stem what we could go from maybe what we might consider Tongan studies to critical Tongan studies and questioning. Wait a minute. Like, I want to have a say, too. Yeah. And, you know, jumping to the Faikavas for a moment, that was one of the things that the Kalapu, the Fofuanga Kalapu in particular, was trying to disrupt and challenge was the who could speak in the Kava. Because at that time, right, if you were high-ranking folks, oftentimes you wouldn't have a say. So they wanted to be like, oh, anybody that comes, you hang that title at the door, and we're going to push it. So there's this new intellectual push which is also kind of in the waves of the pro-democracy movement at that time, that then says, well, wait a minute, we want to have a say too. So all these previous things are really important, but they're also coming from primarily, chiefly perspectives, right? 
or elites within the particular society. But at this time, we got to remember too, like chiefs have changed. We're now under a heavily British influenced society, and so you have rank, chiefly rank, now conflated with social class, nobility, and nobility, right? Which is why you, you know, translation of nobles is nobel, and so you have that used now, and now often the common. The interpretation for Dua is commoner, right? Again, coming from this British system. Um, and so you have to, we have to deal with how do we confront that conflation of those different things. And so you have that way with Futa questioning and challenging who has a say. And, you know, the people that he brought into Atanisi Institute was part of that critical uh, Tongan studies in questioning even, all right, this is great, this is Tongan stuff, but whose version is this? Whose perspective is this? What political agenda does it help perpetuate? I don't know if you have any, if you want to say anything in terms of like thinking about critical consciousness, whether it's through that or even the theologians, some of which don't do that and yeah, some yeah. of which do. Yeah, I mean, Futahel was part of a kind of a broader kind of movement by multiple folks. And I don't have the their names in front of me, but there were multiple folks as far as, you know, Faifekao or ministers, people in government, Futaheru. Um, even Epeli Haofa were part of kind of this, this just this movement of intellectual thinking, philosophy. You know, this period of the '60s, the '70s, and even the '80s was, um, you know, was a very important time historically for social change in Tonga. You know, um, Epeli Haofa was was close with Queen Salote, and then once um, Tupofa came into power, Epeli Haofa continued to work for. Uh, for Tupofa and, and, and the government and just kind of his experiences within working um, working under uh, Tupofa kind of kind of changed his perspective on himself as a Tongan and this led him to um, a lot of you know the famous articles that he's written on um, RC of Islands but you know his two famous novels um, Tales of the Tikongs and I think you know reading a lot of uh, Apeli's works and just um, works on his life, you know, Apeli understood kind of the limitations of, of um, speaking directly about or criticizing Tonga directly, which led him to write very indirectly about Tonga, you know, Tales of the Tikongs. Kisses in the Kisses in the yeah, yeah, Kisses, kisses in the Netherlands. But Apeli Hoafa, because he, he knew he couldn't criticize Tonga directly, he wrote this book about Tales of the Tikongs. Tikongs being Tongans, and then Tongan or Tikongs being this place called Tiko. So if you actually read it, it's pretty short. It's a really easy read, and even today you'll understand who he's uh, who he, he's talking about. And so the book was banned in Tonga, and everybody's like, "Why are you? Why are you? Uh, you know, criticizing Tonga in, uh, this way?" You know, and the response was like, "What are you talking about? This I'm talking about Tiko." Um, and so it's just. For me, it's just seeing the ways in which um, Epele Haofa was just trying to navigate the ways in which he was trying to help Tonga um, because the repercussions of if he were if he were to talk about Tonga directly, um, he had to talk about it in a very indirect way. Which is such a Tongan thing to yeah, do yeah. as well, right? Like using heliaki, that kind yeah. of poetic, indirect speech or metaphor to, to talk about what you want to talk about in a roundabout way. And so, no, I'm glad you brought that up. And I think with Billy Haofa, it's also important to point out Albert Wendt, yeah, yeah. Samoan intellectual and scholar, and like 
and the different people that are writing at that time too. And so there's all these different people who are influencing this kind of critical consciousness where you have all this great scholarship and intellectual traditions that are developing, but then you also have some folks in the inside beginning to question and challenge further. Um, up through to today, I mean, I mentioned Futa, but of course we have Haofa and Went and others, but out of the Atenisi line, we have, you know, uh, Hufanga, Okositino um, Mahina, who has developed the Taba theory and Tabaism, and then we also have Sosiwa Lafatani, um, who is leading the Loao movement, and you know both have these their own intellectual traditional lines that they're building in particular ways of thinking and critical ways of thinking about tongue and stuff, and then even the theologians I think like Nasili Vakauta, Asinate um, Samate, and also Sione uh, Havea, right? Also writing and 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 doing some really important work from the theology realm of things and I, yeah. again because of the history of Tonga like you gotta look at the theologians too and the ones that I've mentioned are ones that I'm like hey it's a good starting point mm-hmm. if you want to think about critical stuff especially you know I think about Havea we referenced a lot in Samuel Vakauta in our paper because uh, while they're coming out of theology sometimes they're more critical than even the non-theologians yeah. in terms of questioning power dynamics You know, like, there's all these ways. We don't want to miss anybody, but there's there's a lot. The point is that there's all of these different waves of intellectual traditions and many that could keep branching out. And we, you know, of course, you have artists as well who are always pushing boundaries of thinking. Um, but Atta is part of, I would say, another really important wave at the moment, uh, founded along with some other really important Tongan thinkers in the early Tongan career folks. I don't know if you want to mention the founders and some of the things that y'all are doing and getting up to at the moment. Yeah, I mean, there's just a few folks at the University of Auckland or even in Aotearoa, New Zealand, who are just wanting to make sure that Tongan scholars are connected. And so, you know, we have an early, early Tongan scholars network as well as a, a Tongan scholars, a global Tongan scholars network. Myself, along with other few main folks, mainly, um, more importantly, Dave Fa, Dr. Dave Fa'avai, um, who is now um, at the University of Auckland, uh, Dr. Edmund Fehoko, who is at the university, who is now at the University of Otago, as well as folks here in the United States, uh, Dr. Um, Esiteli Hafoka at the University of Stanford, um, Finau Tovo, uh, Dr. Finau Tovo, who um, is also in California, as well as uh, folks in Australia. So as a network gets gets bigger and bigger, we want to make sure that Tongan scholars and, and early Tongan scholars are connected in order for us to better, you know, help the community, but also better help um, Tongan students in the States, in Tonga, uh, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and, and even in Australia. There's a, a lot of folks in, um, in Tonga who are, who are kind of part of this, who are part of this network and kind of assisting in, and even being a part of the, the creation of Tonga National University and also being a big part of um, the Tonga Research Association. So there's a lot of folks I, I haven't mentioned, but um, there are a lot of there are a lot of folks who are part of kind of this network and sharing ideas. Um, we we typically try to have um, a, a speaker every month. Um, we move from each region, so the states, United States, Tonga, um, Aotearoa, and, and Australia, and even beyond. 
So it's a good way for scholars to support one another as, you know, in their careers, but also um, help the, help our community as well as students that we're working with. Which is great, you know, because you think about, like, all these different ways that we've talked about, which, of course, there's more. Sometimes what has occurred, too, is with this massive diaspora movement, right? Like, you like to say uh, Tongan Independence Day <laughs> in 1970 when the Treaty of Friendship is dissolved with Great Britain and, and Tonga's no longer protectorate. Um, it's it's it very interesting correlation in terms of the population outside of Tonga. So obviously there was migrations that began to occur a couple decades before that, but at that point you begin to see these early established communities overseas and that has grown exponentially. So if we look at the last 50 years, we could argue potentially now at the moment there may be more Tongans outside of Tonga yeah, than definitely, in Tonga. There are, definitely. Yeah. Right? And so that's a very quick, explosive kind of moment in the last 50 years. Um, and while these intellectual movements are occurring and happening, they can they occur within regions oftentimes, right? But now you have people spread out so much. This moment, uh, you know, with all the scholars you've mentioned that are kind of founding and organizing it is really important in terms of making sure that people are having conversations with each other, right, instead of past each other, because that happens a lot of times too, right? If you're based in the U.S., right, you you might be marginalized in the U.S., but you are linked to global power, right? It can be very easy to be louder or overtake these other places, right, and scholarship that already occurs that might be relevant to what you're trying to do in the States, and vice versa, right? Things in Australia, New Zealand, um, also might be overlooking scholarship that happens over here, and then, of course, what about Tonga, right? Like, probably has is the, probably the least heard in terms of academic publishing, yet it's also developing ideas and thinking and intellectual traditions. Uh, and so anyways, this, the, the network you talk of is such an important moment in Tongan intellectual thought because it allows this conversation across the other influences that are now part of this wide network of, of thought that emerges out of this place, which is really incredible when you think about the relative size <laughs> in relation to other groups, Tongans are throwing it down. And it's something that we need to recognize and honor, I think, for sure, in terms of uh, what's being offered. And so that critical consciousness now has to also then take on this this next wave. Yeah, I mean, Devita Gaili did, did some really good work last year on just the Tongan worldwide count, right? So, you know, he's based in the States, so, you know, looking up the, the stuff, the census numbers, uh, and then I, I looked up the numbers in New Zealand. Saini uh, did the numbers in Australia, I did the numbers in, in uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand, and, but there's probably around uh, over 300,000 Tongans in the world today, and then, you know, a little bit over 100,000 in Tonga, probably like 105 to 110, it fluctuates every year, but that's kind of the number that it stays around inside of Tonga, so... Now there's, you know, 200,000 plus Tongans um, outside of Tonga. And this is not counting the many Tongans who live in Fiji or the many, many um, you know, Fiji nationals who have um, Tongan ancestry. Yeah. But that's, that, get, that gets into a whole nother... We're in Samoa too. Oh, oh, a lot of Tongans in uh, Samoa and even American Samoa. And S American Samoa actually played a very, really important part in the migrations of Tongans to, to the United States. Um, as far as, you know, when Tongans were trying to migrate to the States, as w w whether it's, um, you know, BYU-Hawaii in, in Hawaii or, or the, the mainland, they would have to go live in Samoa for a year. 
before they can get their papers and then and then make make their trek to um, to to the to the United States. But I'm sure uh, you know some of those folks you know during their one period, year period of trying to get their their visa or whatnot to get to the United States. A lot of them are still still there today, intermarrying with the local Samoans there, and you know now we have you know Tongan Samoans, you know many generations um, in who are kind of within this whole realm of American Samoa, which is really seen separately from Samoa Samoa. So just to wrap it up, final question for you to reflect on or to comment on or whatever you'd like is. Well, we've kind of tried to give a little bit of an outline or a skeleton. Obviously, there's a lot of other important people, and, you know, uh, we draw from a lot of different scholars. Um, I feel like Tevita Kaili is a really important leader at the moment, too, in, in what we would think of as in terms of critical Tongan studies. And, and I know that he's thinking bigger than that, too, in terms of Moana Nui, or uh, as uh, Hufanga would say, Moana Lebu Lahi and Nui, right? Um, the big ocean from the perspective of particularly being positioned in the eastern parts of Oceania, um, but also asking hard questions. And some of his recent work in ecological work is, uh, I would argue, is is having that reflective moment of thinking critically of what the current practices are versus what they were versus what they might be based off of remembering this kind of holistic picture. And so he's like rescued, uh, remembered the role of ancestors today and the way they manifest themselves through the natural environment um, and through non-human animal relations too. For you, right, who are some important influences for you in your current work? Um, and perhaps for yourself, obviously, there's, we're going to leave room for everybody else and their, their views and uh, the diversity of, of thought. But what, it, what, would, what would you say is critical Tongan studies for you? How do you approach it? And then who are maybe some of the influences for you when you think about it? <laughs> that's, a big, that's a big question. Uh, no, me, I mean, if, if we really want to talk about critical Tongan studies, we, you know, I would, I would position critical Tongan studies in the ways in which we imagine Tonga to, to always have been. And that's why, you know, I use these terms as pre-Tonga, because we weren't, there was no Tonga before, there was no Samoa. You know, Samoa was ha in you know Tongan is Haamoa, Tonga was Tonga Tapu. You know, we have Haapai. So really, just thinking about Tonga and the way that it's positioned within nationality, um, because if we really look at the everyday of Tongan life, Tongans are identifying, I would say, differently from from the nation state itself. And so this is beyond Christianity. Yes, Christianity is a very important part of. You know the modern structure, modern structure, or modern construction of Tonga, but Christianity isn't indigenous to you know Tonga, Tonga Tapu. It isn't indigenous to the region, and that's a whole other conversation in the ways in which, and I know we've talked about it before, in the ways in which you know the um, the Christian Crusades of Taufa Ahau, uh, in in the widespread kind of conversion of of Tonga at the time which we imagine it to be, you know, once we created the nation state, you know, Tonga was a Christian state, but it's a lot more complicated in the ways in which, you know, not everybody was abiding by Christianity when the nation state was created. Um, and I know that's a lot, <laughs> you know, critical Tongan studies is, is really considered the ways in which Tonga itself is a, nas is a modern construction of nationality. Because you can be a Tongan citizen, and we've talked about it in the past, 
um, and not actually be ethnically Tongan. So the work that I do at the University of Auckland, you know, I'm, I'm kind of at the end of my PhD trying to finish, but I, I, I roll hard with the Modi, with Modi PhD students, because a lot of the ideas that I have around colonization, you know, Tongan never being colonized, decolonial theory, I can't necessarily have it with, uh, within the Tongan spaces because of the ways in which Christianity is entangled in, who, in our identity of who we are. And so a lot of the, the influences of my thinking and my thesis, I would have to give credit to, to Maori in, in the ways in which they're kind of positioning themselves, uh, you know, in resisting, um, you know, Western modernity. But, I mean, a lot of the times Daniel and I are talking about uh, Tongan coloniality and, you know, people are kind of, you know, maybe disagree with us. But at the same time, I think you need to consider the ways in which Tongans have always been talking about, you know, decolonization, you know, Futahelu, you know, all these names that we've been talking about, they've been talking about the same things we have, they just haven't been talking a bit about it in, you know, in the direct ways. You know, Abeli Awafa, yes, he's been talking about it very, you know, very indirectly, directly way, but, you know, understanding kind of the, the Tongan social structure, it's just hard to kind of talk about it in a very direct way, which, you know, Daniel and I have done. Um, and so I just, you know, for me, it's, it all started with Queen Salote and kind of the ways in which she was trying to revitalize something that she saw was being lost, which led to, you know, a tongue, a, what I would call a Tongan renaissance during the 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, and then a lot of the, the, the newer scholars today who are kind of thinking about uh, Tonga critically, you know, we talk about a lot about, you know, Tefitikaili and, and Okusimahina. There are a lot of, you know, new and upping, upcoming young scholars, you know, Edmund Fehoko. Just so many influences, I think, because we look at it so broadly, we're able to kind of look at Tonga critically uh, and the ways in which we can kind of contribute to kind of the overall conversations that um, scholars and community members are having in regards to, to Tonga. I, thought, I liked how you brought it back to Queen Salote as well. And I think that's an important thing to... To keep in mind, right, like that. While there might be different interpretations out there, um, bringing it back to thinking about the way things play out, but then also like it's almost like this uh, to draw from uh, the Tavaist for a moment. I know not everybody is, but you know the idea of that hoa or that pairing, and the perhaps working through those tensions that exist um, in terms of what has been inherited, what still could be there. Uh, and also, like you mentioned, you know, Queen Salota's influence and connections with the Kingitanga and the, the Maori queen at that time. And then your influence now uh, engaging with Matauranga Maori and also Maori scholarship, which also is very influential in critical indigenous studies globally as well. And so I think that's quite an interesting point to think of. And I mean, there's more to come. Hopefully, we you know, we we'll invite people to be very intentional in their scholarship too and thinking about how can we continue to develop ideas I mean I guess we're biased towards philosophy mm -hmm. anyway in theory but ideas are great because they you can carry them good ideas carry throughout time and some of the and obviously we're just building off of ideas that have um, existed for a very very long time and that you know obviously give praises to Queen Salota and what she did um, as a really important scholar there thinker Anything else? We're all good. I think we're good. Papai, Jora, Malo, Apito, thanks Ata um, for coming on again. And until the next time, you remember me. <laughs> <laughs>
then I'll bother you again. All right. Model. Yo. Oh.